Welcome to Direction Correct, a few planets podcast with Colin Scott. Today's guest, Dr. Keith McNulty. So uh, people often have at least two citizenships through parents, right? So I have I have two of my citizenships. I, I, I was born in Ireland, um, so I'm an Irish citizen, but, my, but I have a British parent, so I get British citizenship um, through that. Um, but then my third citizenship comes from the fact that I lived in Australia for eight years. Um, so, you know, that was long enough to become a naturalized Australian citizen. So I have three um, of them. But I don't hold a record in my family because my daughter has four. <laughs> <laughs> because my wife is a New Zealander. Um, so my daughter inherits that too. Um, Just er- so, every island covered across the globe. Is exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But it's like because of our, our mobility, every member of my family, this me, my wife and my two daughters, every member of my family um, was born in a different country. So are there any like country rivalries that go on? I just feel like you mentioned like Irish and then, uh, you know, you know, Britain. I was like, oh, my gosh, that must be a powder keg. But uh, I don't know. Are there yeah, any rivalries uh, yeah, yeah. there? Yeah, well, there's a rivalry in my own head um, for a star, right? It's like what it, it, when I went in the soccer World Cups, which teams do I support? Um, so I normally my, my default is Ireland. But then if Ireland get knocked out, <laughs> I'll move on to a few other <laughs> countries but i mean the rugby is the sport where it's the sport where oh, yeah. quite a bit of rivalry right because of the new zealanders the australians and the irish are a bit big rugby teams um so you get a lot of that in our family <laughs> are you a rugby sevens guy or a full full team yeah more rugby union and i don't watch it that often mostly the world cups and the internationals the six nations and, and stuff like that yeah I don't know anything about rugby. I'm sorry. I, I would love to continue this conversation, but uh, that, that was extent of my knowledge too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so maybe maybe we do a quick introduction here, Keith. Uh, Keith McDulty, thank you so much for joining us today. So, Keith, uh, what, one of the things that we do is we always have people send us bios of kind of like what who they are and what they're about, and I, I really liked yours, Keith. So you had a few little nuggets here that I wanted to share with our audience. One is that. You're a trained mathematician with a doctorate in pure math with, first of all, super intimidating because when I think about like mathematics, I don't know, just like, <laughs> it's like a whole nother language and a whole nother world. Um, uh, but fun fact, you hated statistics when you were younger, and then you became somewhat of a quasi self-taught psychologist. And the other thing that you mentioned here, which I really liked, I'm going all the way back to graduate school here. But you said that you've been on the editorial board of personnel psychology, and P-Psych was always my favorite journal to read from, if there is such a thing, in graduate school. So I wanted to commend you for that. Self-trained data scientist on R and Python, and like we were already talking about, a citizen of three countries with a family member who's also a citizen of four. This is exciting. Thank you for joining us today, Keith. No, it's great to be here, guys. Well, maybe we could start, I don't know, tell us, like, what I, this is going to be really silly, but what is math like? What is pure math? <laughs> I'm sorry, I just I have to know. Um, it's a good question. Um, I, I mean, what you study, if you study a scientific or a, a, any form of science, really, there's always going to be a math component, right? So, you know, those of us who who have studied psychology, you can't get away from doing statistics as part of that, right? There's always a quantitative element to it. Um, and if you do engineering, there's a huge math component. If you do physics, there's a huge math component. Um, but pure math is really about studying math for the sake of studying math, right? There's no, there doesn't need to be an application for it to be interesting in pure math. So um, 
to give you an example of, of what I mean, um, my own personal PhD was, you know, a problem that had remained unsolved since it was first posited in 1909. Um, and it's, there's still no obvious practical application of that problem, right? <laughs> it's just some, some, somebody posited it and a few mathematicians thought, wow, this is interesting and hard. And uh, and it gained a following, and 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 you can you can you know you can try and solve it, and if you manage to make any progress, then they'll they'll, they'll award you a degree or a PhD or whatever. How, how does a guy that uh, is a self proclaimed uh, uh, math nerd merge into this from like not being a stats guy? Yeah, and that was a long journey, right? So um, it dawned on me uh, towards like. My, my PhD was three years long. So like two years into my PhD, it dawned on me that, you know, my original idea of just being like a professor of math, um, as delightful as that seemed when I was 18 or 19 or 20, didn't look so good when I was in the middle of a PhD. Um, and the main reason it didn't look so good was one, one of the things that just I didn't realize until I did it was how lonely it is. Incredibly lonely oh, yeah. um, profession. Um, and uh, you're solving all, problems no. that nobody solved since 1900. <laughs> I mean, that's like yeah. that's like the as lonely as it gets. <laughs> Absolutely, and also like you, you, when you do solve them, you, you you find it difficult to find people who can actually critique your work because it's so um, rare for people to be working on these some of these problems, right? Oh, that's the um, sweet so spot right there. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, I actually went to a to a, a talk uh, the other day by a very very famous. Um, British pop popular scientist um, at a big arena here recently. And he said, uh, during the talk, he said, I'm going to write some math on the board now for you guys. And as he write the math, math, the math on the board, he said, are there any mathematicians in the audience? And uh, my, my wife was nudging me to put my hand up, but I just didn't want to put my hand up because there was like, you know, 10,000 people in this audience. Um, and then he concluded there was no mathematicians in the audience. And he said, well, I can basically write whatever I want here, can't I? <laughs> um, so, so yeah, but, but, but it is it is a lonely profession. Um, and the other issue I had with it as I was starting to come towards the end was you think about a job, you know, and the, you know, academics, particularly in the UK, are not very well paid, um, particularly in these types of disciplines. So you're also, you know, have to think about if you want if you're trying to build a family in the future, is that kind of career going to you know give you the type of life you want? Um, and both of those were coming to home to roost when I was, you know, two or two or three years into the into the PhD. Um, and actually, straight after I finished the PhD, I went and interviewed for a position as, as, a, as a, a professor at a university. And it was through that experience that I determined I'm def I definitely don't want to do this um, because yeah. the, the, kind of, <laughs> the, the facilities and the, the, and, and the nature of the process just told me this, this is not going to be much fun. Um, and so that was my decision to kind of leave the math world behind in terms of the academic side of it. Um, and it was through my work at McKinsey that I kind of ended up taking the journey and coming full circle and coming back to doing a lot of math in, in, in what I do now, really. Well, that's kind of my next question. You know, first of all, I, I mean, management consulting definitely probably pays more than, uh, um, you know, academia does, which is good to know. Uh, but the second thing, did you like, because a lot of what you mentioned in your bio was a lot of self-taught, which I love the autodidact type of background. I feel like I have a lot of that in myself. But did you learn all of that while you were working at McKinsey or did it come before? Was it in graduate school? Like, where did this this fire start in you of, of self-teaching? Um, yeah, it's an interesting question. I think it really it's it came in two phases and it came through me spotting opportunities. Right. So 
in my first three or four years working at McKinsey, I did like traditional management consulting work, you know, um, worked on and led teams with clients. Um, but it wasn't really, I wasn't getting the buzz out of it that, that a lot of my colleagues were getting. It just, I felt that the fit wasn't hundred percent there for me with that type of work. Um, but I had been doing some volunteering work um, at the company around our recruiting. Um, and in particular, when I joined and we're going back more than 20 years now, you know, like many firms, the recruiting processes were very unstructured and not a lot of the kind of IO psych guidance was being applied. And I realized, you know, there's a huge opportunity here to make this much more scientific. Um, and that was the beginning of my interest in IO psychology, because I basically took on a role where I said, look, give me the opportunity to bring some science into this process and to try to make sure we're being more fair, more accurate, more valid um, in the way we do our recruiting. Um, and but of course, I didn't have a lot of knowledge. So so that kind of I realized if I, if I want to be good at this job, I'm going to need to know all this stuff. Um, so I started that process and, and it built up gradually depending on what I was working on. So, for example, if I was working on designing evaluations, I would do a lot of work around um, job analyses and, and those sorts of things that you do when you're when you're designing evaluations. But then, you know, if I want to if I wanted to write tests or, for use in the, in the recruiting process or in evaluation, I would start to learn about it, item response theory and the whole basis behind that um, in order to get that process moving along. Um, and but it, but you know the, the fire was there because I saw the opportunity, and I think that that is tends to be what gives most of us our fire, right? Is if we see a gap, and it's a gap we're interested in, we want to fill it, then we're motivated to to, to build the knowledge and, and the expertise that we need to fill that gap. Is this is this how you also uh, became like the uh, R guru on Twitter for IO psychologists yeah. as well? <laughs> yeah, I, I mean basically um, that was a similar situation. So about Five, five or six years ago, um, a, a team came to speak to me uh, in my previous role as kind of being in charge of how we do measurement and, and, and assessment at the company um, and wanted to look into this idea of the extent to which advanced analytics or algorithmic analytics could be applied to evaluation and, and, and selection processes. And um, through that experience, I realized you know, there is actually a new science on the horizon here. Um, that could fundamentally transform how we do our work, um, not just in IO psychology, but across many, many fields. Uh, and that made me think, okay, I, I, you know, this is something I need to learn about. Because the other thing that you think about is you, if you want to be really good and respected in your field, you have to stay ahead of the game on knowledge, right? So mm -hmm. you don't want to be sitting still for too long. Um, and so the motivation there for me was to say, I need to get to know what this stuff is. And I remember going to a people analytics conference. I think it was the Wharton people analytics conference way back, maybe six years ago. And I felt there wasn't a lot of actual technical analytics content in the conference. Um, but I decided that I need to find out, like, if I'm going to get involved in technical work, what choices should I make? Like, I can't do everything at once. So what should I start with? And I remember just walking up to two guys at the conference and saying, if you guys were to recommend like one language for me to get to know or one, you know, one tool for me to learn in this space, what would it be? And they both just said R. Um, so then I went away and I said, okay, I'm going to learn this. And, and the interesting thing about that was, and Hadley Wickham, who's kind of the R guru um, of the world, uh, always says this, right, um, is that the only way to learn programming languages properly is to have something you need to do with them. Like if you learn without a use case, you won't properly learn because oh, the motivation's yeah. not there. Um, so I remember going to my colleagues and saying, can you give me the biggest piece of analysis you've got 
that get, creates the biggest headaches, that takes the longest amount of time to do, um, that takes the longer, the most amount of FTEs to, to, to kind of fulfill it. And I'm going to take that and see if I can develop it in R. And if I can, let's see what the result is. And we ended up, you know, transforming a, a, a process which took us three months and, and, and five or six people, um, as well as a whole bunch of administration in terms of printing out paper at the end of it. And we turned it into a process that ran in 30 minutes using R. Um, and once we'd done that, you know, the, the floodgates opened. <laughs> and that's when I kind of just decided I need to spend my time on this because this is really impressive stuff. Yeah, I, I don't think that people really realize the power of the computer that can be unleashed through R, be it through, uh, you know, it's, it's one thing to, uh, you know, run a logistic regression, you know, write a little line of code or something like that, but also then loop it across variables, et cetera. You could run like a thousand regressions in two minutes if you want. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Col Cole knows this all too well. Like he he'll call me like at two in the morning and be like, are you using the new R native piping? I, that's the best practices. I'm like, okay, Cole, whatever, man. Uh, you're you're <laughs> definitely lying. First of all, I'm I'm asleep at two a.m. And second of all, that's not what I'm calling you about when I call you. But I appreciate. Oh, we the get compliment. these long discussions about piping all the time. Can't stop talking yeah. about piping. You can't make this guy. I do know it's the little like uh, was it was the the percent signal is the piping right? Oh, that's, that's old school now. Actually, that's old yeah, school. Yeah, that's old school now. Yeah, yeah. yeah it shows how we outdated I am. Oh gosh. Yeah. Uh, well, you're not the only one. I, 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 a lot of code that I, a code that I post now, I get people commenting saying, "What is this strange symbol you're using? I've never seen it before." So a lot of people are not used to the new pipe symbol. <laughs> but but this is this has led you on a journey to where you've now published two books: one on uh, general uh, R usage, and also one on network analysis as well. Yeah, I mean, the first book is really about about explanatory modeling, um, and and you know, one of the things I noticed when I first got involved in this space is there was this absolute obsession with predictive modeling, um, and in our space, predictive modeling, there's only a very small number of situations where it's valuable, right? Because no no predictive model has that has the level of accuracy that that can help you in the high stakes situations we're often dealing with, which is kind of people's careers and lives. Um, you can't get the kind of accuracy from these models that where you could safely use use them. But what I found is hugely valuable in our space is explanatory modeling, right? So a lot of my work is just going and analyzing data and then going back to my clients and explaining to them, you know, these are the things that are affecting the process you're interested in. This is the, if you if you pull this string, this is what how, how your outcome will change. Um, those sorts of conversations where you kind of can explain the phenomenon using models. And that's just been huge for me. Uh, and I just felt like not enough time is being spent on that topic, on explanatory modeling. Like a lot of people know how to run a model in Python, like a, you know, a scikit-learn model. But if you ask them to explain what the output means, a lot of people would struggle. So a big reason behind yeah. that first book was just to kind of lay it out. <laughs> yeah. Do you mind if I jump in here? Because I, in the past month or so, I, I got into an argument with somebody about, you know, how much predictive models were overrated and how much explanatory models have you know value that is untapped and and so i actually i wrote an article about it and published it just because of that argument but in that article i cited you i just wanted to be like with this person you clearly haven't read keith mcnulty's work and so you know i was just thinking like all i needed to do was cite you because your, your stuff is excellent and and scott i think didn't do you justice in introducing these two books 
these are like some of the best free resources out there. Oh, I mean, absolutely. you've got, I mean, you've got the handbook on regression and, you know, obviously the title is longer than that. Cause it's, it's about like modeling and people analytics. And then you've got the handbook on graphs and networks and people analytics. These are like the tome resources of the field. And obviously, you know, like maybe the piping code gets outdated eventually, since I know you do include the code in there, but these are really, really good. And, I don't know. I just want to say thank you. Can I say thank you? Thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for doing this, Keith. Oh, it's a pleasure. You're welcome. I mean, I, I enjoy doing it. Otherwise, I wouldn't do it, obviously. And one one point which I want to make, which reflects back to to what Scott was asking me about, you know, the the, the amount of social media posting I do on, on on coding and those sorts of things, is I wouldn't do that if I didn't get something back from it, right? And And, and often when I'm posting ideas or code or thoughts, um, people will respond and it starts a discussion. And through that discussion, I'll often learn about new ways of doing things or alternative interpretations. So it's really, you know, we live in the world of crowdsourcing ideas now, and I'm, I'm taking full advantage of that in the way that I work and the way that I interact with others. And the books have helped that for sure. And of course, the code will get outdated, but there's always time for, a, a, you know, addition two and addition three later on down the line. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a network analysis guy and I was thumbing through your book last night and there's uh, things that like really struck me. Like one is you, you put the example data set, the first freaking thing in the book. I mean, there's other books out there that have, uh, there's packages, I guess like SNA or Intergraph that has embedded network data, but you put it right up front. It's like, okay, this is what we're going to use. And uh, if you want to get started, here's where we actually start. And also, how to scrape social media, i.e. Twitter, which I'm probably going to yeah. do later this week or, you know, this weekend, <laughs> what have you. Yeah. Super pumped to check this out. Yeah, Twitter has an incredible API. Um, and, um, you know, the amount of structured data you can get down from Twitter is great. And it's just all set it up. And so you've probably seen in the book, but I, I do a lot of analysis around politics because um, politics is an incredible um you know, set of data where network analysis really shows you some really clear results and some really interesting things. You know, we're talking nerd stuff here, but like, how would someone get started uh, other than read your book on, you know, just getting a toe into the waters of R? What, what's your best advice? For uh, well, I, what I'll say is there's a lot more resources available to them now than there was when I first started, right? So I remember when I first started, you know, you, you would have a, a few example courses there, but your code would often break. And, and sometimes your code would break, it'd take you weeks to try and figure out what went wrong with it. Um, but nowadays, you know, because there's been six years of learning behind this, there's so much material online. Um, and I would, I, I would recommend, I, I mean, particularly the, the, the work that the R studio scientists pump out, like um, Hadley and, and, and Garrett, uh, Garrett Groleman and, and people like that. Um, they're publishing a lot of very well thought and very well structured books uh, to help teach people about the language itself. Um, but of course, as I said before, you need a use case. So yeah. um, if you really want to learn, you need to take something you're working on where you have a real incentive to get a good answer to it and basically challenge yourself to do it in that language. Um, and that's that's how you'll really learn, I think. Yeah, the, the, the tidyverse also makes things much, much more simple than it used to be, definitely. Yeah, although yeah. There'll, there'll be people who disagree with you about that. There's, 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 the, there's the anti-tidyverse <laughs> camp in the R community as well. <laughs> yeah, so that actually leads me to my next question, which is what community is more prickly when you're doing analytics on politics 
or analytics on data science <laughs> where you're putting out like a R is better, a Python is better, or, you know, I, I don't know, in the UK, is it like the Labour Party and the Conservative Party or something like that? <laughs> like, what, what's, which community is more prickly? Um, that's an interesting question. Um, I mean, pol- the, 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 the stuff that I do in the, in the politics space, the results that come out are generally not controversial, right? They kind of show that there are different parties and they have opposing points of view and there's little communities within those parties, but like it's really an observation of real life and, and you don't get a lot of people disagreeing with it or, or, or causing offense or anything. So, so there's never many issues there. I think in, in the actual data science community, I, I try my best to stay away from the argument of Python versus R because there's no right answer to it. And whatever answer you give, you'll offend someone. Um, but, uh, but, you know, like I work with both and, you know, there, there's definitely, um, there's definitely spaces where one is better for what you're doing and uh, than the other. Um, you know, I would say, for example, that if, if you're, if you're working in natural language processing and particularly with large language models, then Python is kind of much more ready to go, um, in that space. Um, but if you, if you're working a lot with the, the wrangling of data and, and, and also the publishing of data science, um, R tends to have a better ecosystem for that, particularly if you're a fan of the tidyverse. Um, so it's, it's horses for courses, I think. And, and the, if you if you want to be a really good data scientist, you should over time learn, learn both. I think. Uh, are there any plans to write any additional books? Like I sure could use one on, uh, say data viz, anything like that coming down the pipe. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I don't think I'd be the right person to write a book on data viz just because data visualization specialists, you know, they're, they're, it's not just about the coding, it's about how you lay it out and the design and, you know, and all that sort of stuff. And I'm not really a designer per se. One of the things I, I am interested in potentially doing is a book on natural language processing, um, particularly for our space, right, for the people analytics yeah. space, because it has huge applications. Um, but it's moving so quickly, you know, that I worry that when I start, by the time I finish it, I'll already have to go back and start writing it again. <laughs> um, yeah, like what, what's so a book to be written in the age of GPT-3? You know, like right. it's hard to <laughs> it's hard to stay relevant when things are moving that quickly. I, I don't know. Yeah, exactly. So, Keith, one of the things that I really appreciate about you, kind of the point earlier about, you know, the value of explanatory models and, and some of the wisdom that you bring is you'll you'll tackle things like common misconceptions in statistics, like things that mm-hmm. people don't take into consideration that they should or things along those lines. I don't know. Do you want to hit us with any of the common ones that you see that would be really great for our audience to hear? Uh, oh, well, you put me on the spot there, but but I mean, I'll, maybe I'll just mention one that I, that I actually you know made a post about a few days ago, um, which is uh, linear regression. Right. So I think linear regression, everybody understands it as like the simplest form of explanatory model. Right. Um, and uh, as a result, people just think, think, OK, well, we're basically assuming that all our data is on a straight line. Um, and just that very assumption is problematic. Right. Because we're not assuming that all our data is on a straight line. We're assuming that over many, many observations, the average of our data points is on a straight line. And that, that has huge consequences. And w- one of the side effects of not understanding that is that when people see the word confidence interval, um, they think that you know, when, the, when the model spits out a confidence interval for a particular data point, that the data point is going to be between 95% chance it's going to be, be between those two ends of the confidence interval. But that ac- is actually wrong. Um, what the model is saying is that the over many, many 
experiments, the average of this data point will lie between that that confidence interval. Um, there's a much wider interval for any 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 single data point, um, and that that's what we call the prediction interval. And a lot of people just don't know that. Um, like a, a lot, uh, when I show people how to generate a prediction interval, they'll often say to me, "I never even knew that you could do that." Um, yeah. <laughs> so that that's a surprising one for me. Well, it's yeah. actually something because I had to figure that out myself as well. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. Um, I have this might be a really deep question or it might be a really stupid, simple question. Um, but you have a math background, and I was actually thinking about this. Shows you the random things I think about. Um, I was thinking about this the other day. Why is regression the most simple form of modeling? Like, is it possible for there to be a more simple form of modeling out there? Um, I mean, there's always possi a possibility for your for your models to be simpler, right? I mean, uh, to give you an example, if you have uh, a um, you know, a, a binary outcome, one or zero, true or false, right, that you're modeling. Um, a statistician will, will tend to go straight to binomial logistic regression for that, which has like a mathematical foundation yeah, exactly. to it around the logistic function. But actually, you could, you know, a lot of people will say to you, I, I will choose a simpler model, which is a linear probability model, right, where you're just modeling the probability on a straight line. Um, so you're basically, it's a, a fudge between binomial regression and, and linear regression. Um, and there's no argument why somebody can't do that. You basically can use any model you want, but but when you use it, you have to be aware of why you've chosen it and what the assumptions are. Because if you're not, then you may be being false in your explanations of the results. Um, and that's the important point, I think. It's like, I'd never dictate what type of model to use, but I would dictate that, you know, if you use a model, know what it is and know how to explain it. I mean, speak, speaking of that, uh, in, in the consulting world, Cole as well, uh, have you seen stats be misapplied in perhaps a humorous way? Yeah. yeah. Wrongly applied. Yeah. I mean, the, the typical one, right, is is people jumping from an association to a causality. Um, that's that's the most typical one. Right. Um, and particularly when you're in, in a business context, um, people are often very hypothesis driven in a business context. Right. So they're they're. Yeah. Unlike a scientist who will often go into the problem saying, I don't know anything about this answer and I'm just going to build up the evidence and see where it takes me. Um, in business, people are normally going in saying, I think this is what the answer is. Um, and when you go in with that mindset, you're often then looking for anything that supports your answer, but kind of skipping over anything that might disagree, <laughs> disagree with your answer. Um, and Selective that, input that, to that, that point, is, right? Exactly. And, and, and that, that's problematic. And, and one of the things you often see, right, is people will see a correlation between something and they will immediately assume um, that, that that is a causal um, effect. And there's a whole science around um, causal inference, right? But the typical example is the relationship between waffle houses and divorces, right? So the more waffle <laughs> houses there are in a state, the higher the divorce rate. Um, oh, so, you know, we're, we're it, from Louisiana. We know about this. Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. There's a lot so, of know, waffle these... houses there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I saw I saw a similar situation where like uh, analysis came back as at a company, uh, a few companies back, where essentially if people selected five, you know, highly agree on uh, a training exercise, then you know they had better outcomes. They were you know more likely to get promoted or this sort of thing. So the instructor yeah. started telling all the participants to put a five on right. their survey. It's right. just pure science, uh, exactly. you know. That's great exactly. reverse and, causality. Yeah. There. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, and, and there are so many situations, right, where the conclusion 
you often you'll draw a conclusion, but it's dangerous to publicize that conclusion because it could change the very basis of the problem that you've been dealing with in the, in the first place, right? Yeah, I don't know if you guys have seen this, but this is this this has creeped up every single place I've worked, and I do not know why. Is this just generalized under, misunderstanding of like bar charts? Like, well, you know, males <laughs> oh, yeah. scored sixty nine and females scored sixty eight, and therefore females are doing so much worse than males because the scores are <laughs> one point different. It's like, are you kidding right. me? Those scores are virtually right. <laughs> identical. And like, am I the one crazy person here? Because this happens all the time. I don't know why. It does. Yeah. It's a, the lack of hypothesis testing. The lack of knowledge around hypothesis testing is a really big problem um, in, in, in the kind of in the business world, I think. Um, and again, you know, often people are drawing those conclusions because those are the conclusions they've gone in with. And they're just looking for any evidence they can find um, to support them. But um, speaking of charts, by the way, um, you know, I think one of the least used charts in the business world for good reason, right, is the pie chart. And um, and if you, you know, when you guys leave the session and anyone who's listening can try this out, if you go into R and you seek help on the pie function, pie chart function, which is just pie, just put question mark pie in the console and then look at the help and read down the help a bit and you'll see the statement that says pie charts are a very bad way to represent data. It actually says that in the help function. <laughs> But we still need it because people still use it and uh, love it, yeah. per se. Uh, yeah. I, I also must say that uh, I have to look up in your book at least four times a year the difference between probability and odds ratio. I can never keep it straight. I always go oh, to yeah, your resource. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the best. <laughs> it, like, <laughs> why, why other statistics books don't explain it the way that you... Because I remember you oh, came... Yeah. You came and spoke, Keith, at the DFW People Analytics Meetup. We had a, a webinar that we hosted, and I complimented you about that there. This was like a year ago. But that that's mm. that's the GOAT. I mean, that's the best. Um, I don't know. Yeah. Maybe maybe now we could switch to a section. And Keith, I know I don't think you, you've listened to these before, but we have a section called the Nerdery, which is where we bring up different, um, you know, let's call them nerdy topics that we want to cover. <laughs> I don't know, Scott, I think you had one about college professors. Do you want to start there? Oh, uh, I wasn't going to start there, but uh, we can. Well, let's not start there. Let's start let's with something Let's not start else. there. Let's start with something else then. I didn't have that pulled up. Um, have you guys ever worked in an open office environment? Actually, no. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, mean I, I have. I, I mean, basically, in our... Um, in our company, it's moved over the, over the last couple of decades from, you know, we used to be grouped into offices, but now most of the space is open space. Um, and, the, and the rooms are for booking for, for meetings, for private meetings or, or those sorts of things. So um, I've certainly seen that change occur a lot over the last 20 years. Yeah, there, there's going to be some like implications when people start returning to office as well. Well, Adam Grant uh, posted something, I don't know, probably like a week ago, and he essentially like rails on this open office concept saying that uh, they cause 27% more six days, 14% lower cognitive performance, 70% less face-to-face -face interaction. That's the really surprising one because these are essentially designed to yeah. enable face-to-face -face interaction. But I mean, like, yeah. I don't know, you, you sit down at a table next to some dude eating corn nuts or something like that, and <laughs> you just wind up like putting your headphones on and trying to shut out the world, essentially. <laughs> Sounds like an experience you've had, Scott. Are you talking from experience there? Are you the corn nut guy or the guy that sits next to the corn nut guy? 
I, I used to go over to uh, our IT area, just kind of like walk through and like look at these miserable souls, like having to sit shoulder to shoulder to people uh, at their computers. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, like I yeah. mentioned, I've, I've never actually sat in one of those areas, but that's not an accident because any job I've interviewed for that actually had an open office set up, I've said, nope, not doing it because I, I just see this. And, and then my one cynical take, and I know I've, I've shared this on the podcast before, is you know, the genesis for open office plans, it, it, the, the cover story was that it was about, you know, creativity and kind of creating serendipity and all that. But the reality was it was all about cutting costs from a real estate spend because oh, wow. you can pack more people into a smaller amount of area with an open office concept. And so, and I know that's might be the exception to the rule because some companies do spread people out, but I think it's just, it's all a cover story. I don't know, Keith, do you have any experience with this? Did you meet Adam Grant at that Wharton conference that you went to back in I know, six uh, yeah, years ago? I know Adam quite well. I've interacted with him and worked with him on a few things in the past. And, and um, you know, I, I think often the statistics and, um, and the research doesn't necessarily explore why um, we're seeing these outcomes, right? And, and for me, that's the most important thing. Um, and often and our own experiences, experience. we have them, can, can drop some hints on that. I mean, I don't know about you, Scott, being in open um, office environments, but, you know, the, the likelihood is that you're going to camp down near people you don't really know. Um, and as a result of that, you're less likely to talk to them, right, or get into social interactions with them. Um, whereas if you are in an actual office, a shared office with other people, then often you're all in that office for a reason. And even if you're not, because you're in there every day, you're going to get to know each other. Whereas, you know, if you're in an open environment, you're probably sitting next to a different person every time you come in. Um, so there's some, you know, social, obvious social dynamics reasons why some of, some of that might be occurring. And, and that would also lead me to conclude that, you know, if you're allowed to, I mean, why come into an office if you're not going to interact with people, you know, on yeah. a frequent basis, you might as well stay at home. Right, which which probably you know could drive higher absenteeism. So the reasons behind it are, are, are to me are kind of more interesting than the statistics themselves. I think there's a psychological component here as well. It's like if people did come in every day and talk to someone new, I mean, now now you're sharing ideas, you know, meeting new people, feeling more embedded in the organization, this sort of thing. But I have a feeling that people essentially just camp out at a spot, and you know, you right. walk in the office like, oh, that's that's where Cole usually sits, or this is where you know, Amy sits or whatever. And it's not really as interactive uh, as it could be. Uh, In in fact, I I saw a uh, network, and I'll have to dig this up for the show notes. It was a network analysis article based on a quasi-experimental study, a natural experiment, where a organization went from a, you know, standard cubicle setup to a open office environment. And they put those uh, sociometric badges on people so they can measure how close you are, like how, how long you talk, this sort of thing. And they found that people essentially put headphones in. They started communicating virtually. They, they just stopped talking to each other. It had total yep. backfire effect. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I can only speak to my own experience, which is that I love open space offices. I love the space. It just does something, to, helps me open my mind or something, which I can't uh, understand. But in our London office is lucky enough to have huge, big, high ceiling open spaces, which I, I, I love working in. Um, but I, you know, the reason I go into the office really is to get away from my kids <laughs> um, because, you know, I've, I've been working at home a lot over the pandemic and your kids kind of, you know, they don't understand the boundaries between work and, um, and, 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 and life. So at least when you're in the office, those boundaries exist by, by default. Um, so I try to do it whenever I can. 
Thank goodness your kids aren't listening to the podcast. My goodness. <laughs> How offensive, Keith. No, I, I, I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Well, here's well, kind of another yeah. kind of like pandemic-y related topic. Uh, Scott and I found this Nature article. And, and for those of you who are not, you know, scientists by nature, uh, that was no pun intended there. Um, not that, by nature. Yeah. That, you know, there's really two premier scientific journals around the globe. One is science and the other is nature. So when you find a, a, like a finding that's come from one of these journals, usually it's considered one of the, you know, most robust findings that that's out there. Yeah. And this Nature article, it talks about how Zoom or, or let's just call it video chatting in general in the workplace is killing creativity. And I'll, 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 I'll read the last line of the abstract of the article. It said, our results suggest that virtual interaction comes with a cognitive cost for creative idea generation. And so one of the things that we've kind of had a running debate on the podcast about is kind of like the whole return to office, not returning to office, staying remote. And, and like kind of the cost and the benefits and the first and second and third order consequences of these decisions. And so, I don't know, what, what do you guys think about this? That, you know, if you have a remote first company, what that's doing to creative ideas, especially if you're trying to be an innovative organization? Yeah, I, I mean, it's, I, I, again, my, my reaction is always to try and think about what, you know, what is, What's driving that that observation? The, the results of that research. What are, what are the what, what are are the causalities underlying it? Um, and it's a surprising result, to be honest, because you would expect that if you're remote, you have more time, you know, available to concentrate and think, which should lead to greater creativity. But it also could be affected if you're if you're if you're you know the environment you're working in is full of distraction as well. Yeah. Um, which which is often the case, I think, but but it, it's a really surprising result, um, and it's not obvious to me why that would be the case. You're coming to this a little bit blind, Keith. Uh, the, the article is absolutely fascinating. They use this eye tracking software, uh, and they essentially found that uh, people are focused on their screen. Like I, I don't know, like whenever I'm on a Zoom call or you know video conference. I just kind of stare at myself the entire time. Mm -hmm. And this places a cognitive load on people, which reduces their recall and ability mm -hmm. to think clearly. Uh, you know, I, I've also said that, like, as soon as I hop on a call, my IQ drops like 20 points. This is sort of like <laughs> self-affirming sort of study. From 80 here. to 60, Scott? No, I'm kidding. Oh, I wish. I wish. I wish yeah. I had that high. I wish. <laughs> yeah. No. Yeah. I don't and know. I guess I'm, I'm a bit biased on that because as a computer programmer, I'm staring at a screen a lot anyway. Um, irrelevant of whether I'm, you know, on calls or working remotely. So, um, yeah, I'm guessing for non-computer programmers that 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 difference could be quite substantial. Yeah, I'll um, just speak from my kind of own personal experience here, but I, I I do find this to be a real finding. But it really comes from an old finding, which uh, comes from like the Lean Six Sigma type uh, of research, which is around task switching. So that usually when you have to switch from one task to another task, you have like a 50% kind of refractory or reset period that it takes to get back up to speed. And so I find that if I'm in any kind of like creative outlet in this type of environment, and then a Slack message pops up, or I have to jump on a Zoom call mm -hmm. and then jump back off, I get interrupted and I can't get back up to that really high yep. baseline of creativity. That, that's kind of been my own personal feeling on this. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I think it's sim 
it's similar with a lot of deep cognitive processes, right? For example, if I'm deep in, if I'm in what I call code flow, right, which is where I'm deep into um, hacking a, a piece of code or trying or trying to get something working, and then I suddenly have to join a call, I know that when I leave that call, I may not be able to restart it again until the next day because it takes so it, it takes such an effort to get back to where you were uh, it, it, at that concentration level. Yeah, there's some estimates that say it might be 20, 30 minutes before you can actually, you know, refocus yourself after a Zoom call. Yeah. There's also the element of like, if you're trying to collaborate with somebody via Zoom, like it's just not the same. Like you can't read their body language. It's yeah. it, it's harder to interrupt people. Uh, the, the, the collaboration tools like whiteboarding just isn't the same as being in the physical room and writing on the wall, these sort of things. Do you mind yeah. if I go kind of yeah. random here for a second? This is not something love we intended it. to talk about today, but I have seen some um, people in the academic sphere writing about this, and then I know uh, very publicly Meta has talked about this as well, that they think that they're going to augment kind of the Zoom environment with AR or VR, so like the virtual reality or the AR. I, I just, I imagine that's going to be just as glitchy as a Zoom call is, and it's going to be just as hard. But I don't know. Do you guys think that that's the future in in terms of a remote based environment? That you know we're all wearing haptic suits and and you know we're we're talking to each other, and I get to see your arms move like a robot, kind of. I don't know. What what do you think? Is that like is it going to be dystopia or utopia? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it, your question there, Cole, is like a microcosm of the entire debate around the direction that Meta is going in, right? And 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 the the um you know the the focus that that um, Zuckerberg is putting on on the metaverse. I mean, half the community thinks it's a visionary, and half the community thinks it's completely mad, right? Um, and um, I personally, you know, I, I mean, I I I personally don't. I think a lot of of augmented reality that we see currently in the world today is more gimmicky than useful. Um, and I worry that that would be the case when, when it's applied to kind of work-based interactions. Because let's let's admit one of the benefits of remote interaction, right, in Zoom is the fact that you can, um, you know, it, you don't have to be seen if you don't want to. And that gives you a lot of freedom um, because, you know, some sometimes people are not feeling well or they're just not in the mood and they don't want to go on screen. Well, and if true. you go into an environment, yeah, uh, if you, if you go into an environment where there's a lot of augmented reality and stuff, then that just creates <laughs> pressure for you to be, you know, for your image to be present in that environment, and that would worry me a lot um, in terms of what you know the expectations on employees that are working remotely. There was a recent study. I'll uh, see if I can dig this up for the show notes as well. Essentially showed that uh, go figure, attractive people tend to perform better. Uh, in a real life situation, but only men retain this advantage over Zoom calls. I don't really know why, right. but uh, it's a recent study. Well, I guess uh, yeah. you and I will never know, Scott. Oh man, <laughs> I, ne I, I never know the advantage there. But yeah. uh, you know, we we have another study from Nature. Uh, it essentially says that twenty percent of all college professors come from just eight universities in the U.S. Uh, you guys want to take a gander and do some guessing? I mean, I'm going to say it's pretty <laughs> Ivy League heavy, but I yeah, don't, I I don't know the so. list. Oh, is it, might, is you, it you all Ivy? Maybe like throw in like a West Coast University, like a Berkeley or a Stanford or something like that. Well, you got two of them. You got two of them right there. Any other guesses? I'm, 
I mean, you'd have to think an MIT or some something like that is in there. You got it. You got it. You got Harvard as yeah. well. Michigan, Wisconsin, yeah. Illinois, and uh, my alma mater, University of Texas at Austin. So I mean, surprising like, to see some state schools in there. That's it. That's impressive. Hookem, hookem, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but I mean, like, this has this has implications for if you do want to be a professor, prestige uh, still matters. Yeah. I guess it's uh, yeah, why Keith you... didn't get a professor job because he didn't go to UT. I mean, that's really what it comes down to, right, Keith? I didn't go to anywhere in the U.S. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, but yeah, I mean, it, it is it is what well, we see this replicated across many environments, right? The, the simple fact is that um, you know, it's an efficiency play that that if you only have so much effort put into looking for the people that you want, and if you're more likely to find them in the high ranking institutions, then you'll look there first. Um, and, and that creates a structural bias, I guess. Yeah, it even says here the top five universities. So that's Berkeley, Harvard, Michigan, uh, Wisconsin, Madison, and Stanford uh, produce more professors than all non-U.S. schools combined. Pretty, pretty. I wonder incredible. what that does yeah. from like I don't know. Like, there's there's a lot of research on like diversity and creativity. I wonder exactly. if there's that limits the amount of cognitive diversity that goes into mm -hmm. the professor or is that the called the academy or the i'm not even gonna get that word right the professorships um uh that are out there i, I don't know i mean i feel like there there's got to be some kind of negative consequence of this oh yeah, yeah. you guys I, I, yeah. I, yeah echo chambers I mean, the, the whole bit yeah absolutely and and uh, you know generalizing it out we see it across the board as as a, a psychologist like you know the, the kind of quality diversity trade-off is is always out there you know um that if you if you cut down on your diversity um you know it it, it, can, it can massively impact um you know cognitive interaction and, and 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 idea generation and those sorts of things but we constantly see in almost every walk of life that um organizations and companies take the quickest route they can to find the hires that they need purely because it's, it's an efficiency play. Right. And I, I, I wouldn't see why academia is any different from that. I think, you know, we're just seeing the same thing there. Someone's already done the pre-screen for you. I, I eat yeah, exactly. MIT or Harvard, what have you. Yeah, it's like yeah. a prolonged yeah. job I mean, interview sort of. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, so Keith, I just think it's crazy. We were talking about this before the podcast. It, it's crazy and it's also kind of funny that you're a member of PSYOP in the U.S. and you're considered an iopsychologist here, but that you're not considered an, a, a psychologist in Britain because the British Psychological Society. I don't know. Do you want to talk about that at all? I thought that was hilarious part of your background. Yeah, I mean, it it shows that, that I think the U.S. is more forward thinking in terms of what it means to be a practitioner um, in a given field, right? And there are many routes into being a practitioner. One route is that you start at age 18, you do your, your degrees and you, you, know, you go straight into a job. Or another route is that you did something else early on, but then your work um, and the things you did after you studied took you into the field and you learned in different ways. Um, and what we see with PSYOP, for example, is that they are much more open to having members that um, have come to the field in a different way. Um, they have they have a committee, um, and if you have if you don't have an obvious PhD or or a degree in in, in IO psychology, then you can submit evidence to suggest that you still are qualified, um, and the committee reviews that and makes a decision to determine whether they view you as qualified, despite the fact that you don't have the traditional 
qualifications in the field, right? But there's no such process in the UK. So the UK is pretty strict in terms of how they charter um, uh, membership. And they just say, if you don't have an, an, an accredited or approved degree, uh, you cannot be considered a part of, uh, you, you cannot be considered a chartered psychologist. You can't join the society as such. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm a much more in favor of the US way of thinking because nowadays people come to their disciplines in many different ways and we need to be open to that. Well, Scott and I, as both as full members of SIOP, we're very glad to have you. And we we look poorly upon the Hogwarts rules <laughs> that the UK is engaging in in their society. So, you know, we're, we're like, come come and join us, Keith. We'll take you on this side of the pond. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, Keith, uh, it's, it's been an absolute pleasure having you here. Uh, how, how can folks get in touch with you if they want to reach out? Um, social media is probably the easiest way. Um, I, I'm active in three routes on, on social media. I use LinkedIn for a lot of kind of business analytics related posts. There's a really, you know, burgeoning analytics community. You know, a lot of people say that LinkedIn's kind of declined in, in, in quality over the last few years in terms of, you know, the, what you find on there. But I think one of the things that has been maintained is there's, there's a lot of really fun and, and, and interesting conversation around the analytics space um, on that platform. That's one route. Um, I do a lot of posting on Twitter as well, particularly around highly technical stuff. There's an excellent R community on Twitter. And then my Medium blog um, is uh, another route. So I tend to write a lot of my longer thoughts uh, via my Medium blog. And, and so people can always find me on there as well. Yeah, I think uh, LinkedIn took a tumble when I joined, essentially when it went downhill. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, mean, I, I started publishing there. articles and the quality went way down, you know. <laughs> So, well, Keith, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today. This has been quite a pleasure. And I, I just can't thank you enough for what you do for our community. Um, I don't know, Scott, any any final words before we give, give Keith the last word on the podcast? Uh, go out, read Keith's book, donate to his charities. Oh, yeah. I forgot to ask you about that, Keith. Like, this is, I, I really got inspired by this. I, I didn't know this in, in the past when you and I have chatted, but I, I found out through a little birdie that all of the, 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 I guess, income that's generated through some of your endeavors, you actually donate to charity. I don't know. Do you want to talk about that at all? Um, yeah, I mean, that, that's something I, I've been, that's been important to me since day one, right? So the reason that I know all the things I know now and the reason I have this expertise is because I got it from the open source community, right? So I learned it all from volunteers. So it doesn't feel right to me that then I would use that knowledge to, you know, further my own um, financial situation because I got it for free. So I should give it back for free. Um, and so uh, but but nevertheless, um, and I do give it back for free in the terms of it's all available online. But where there is revenue to be made through publishers and things, then that can also be used for a good cause. Um, and that's where I thought, you know, I, I'm not going to say no to, to putting it into print. Um, but if I do put it into print, I want to make sure that that you know, that that whatever revenue is generated goes to something useful. Um, and so over the last couple of years, it's been going to various, you know, charities to kind of support diversity in, in, in programming, but also the situation in Ukraine and various other things. Um, and that's really important to me. And I'm going to keep doing that. Yes, I think that's a delightful place to stop. Th thank you so much for joining us today. And thank you so much for what you do for our field and for just the world as a whole. Uh, you've Absolutely. been listening to Directionally Correct, uh, People Analytics Podcast with Colin Scott. Thanks for joining us today, Keith. Thank you, guys.
As always, all opinions are our own and do not reflect those of any other organization.